This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We begin with a snapshot of Islamist radicalization in Canada. It's a new report from the Macdonald-Laurier Institute that looks to quantify the numbers and compare the situation here with the U.S. and Western Europe. It's important work, especially in light of the fact that ISIS has been all but wiped out and many of these so-called foreign fighters are trying to come home. This report focuses on 95 people, only five of them women, all of them either Canadian citizens or permanent residents, and only 11% had criminal charges laid against them before they hooked up with ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or other organizations. So let me give out the numbers. I'm sure you have something to say about all of this. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now we are going to the authors, Alex Wilner, who is an assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University, and Irfan Yar is a counterterrorism and foreign affairs analyst and currently a research intern at the McDonald laurier Institute. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Okay, first, let's start with Alex. What does this 95 mean? Are you saying that we only have 95 uh, radicalized Islamists in the country right now? No, um, what we're saying here is that we've uh, compiled a data set of 95 individuals, and we've provided biographical detail of those 95 individuals. The data set itself, um, which is built on open source information from media, uh, government sources, etc., uh, stretches back to 2006 and ends in 2017. So basically, we've collected information on 95 individuals who are known to or are suspected of having facilitated, participated, supported uh, Islamist uh, violence or, and radical, or uh, of being radicals um, between that uh, in those 10 years. So basically, it's captures the rise and fall of ISIS, but it goes right back to the Toronto 18 case as well. Okay, so, but do you have a a good fix on how many people are actually in the country right now? The the reports that we have, and these are open source reports that are corroborated by uh, government, um, you know, they, the government not figures suggest about 190 uh, to 250 overall. Um, at one point, traveled overseas. Some of these are fighters. Some of them are individuals, including minors or women, who went to uh, ISIS-held territory for reasons of building the so-called caliphate, right? So a, a whole mix of these extremist uh, travelers. Um, and then the corroboration is about 60 individuals have come back to Canada of that total number. Okay, so 60 are already here. And uh, just before we move on to more substantive uh, things, do you have a fix on how many people want to come back? That's a great question. We know that there are uh, up to dozens, several dozens, uh, currently being held 
uh, either in prison or in intern camps by Kurdish forces or by the Turks, uh, by Turkey. Um, you know, these are individuals, again, women and children, including children that were born within ISIS-held territory over the last five years. Um, these are these individuals have a nexus to Canada. Uh, many of them, um, I believe, would like to come home to Canada. Question is whether or not we let them in and under what conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irfan, uh, how do we compare, you know, on a per capita basis to the United States or to countries in Western Europe who have the same problem? Uh, well, uh, in our study, uh, which of course is a McDonald Laurier Institute publication, uh, we found many interesting facts. For example, we found that uh, uh, most of these individuals were men and there were very few women. Uh, the data also suggests that uh, the average age of the Canadian jihadist uh, is 27, which is almost similar to the average age of uh, U.S. jihadists. But as we compare this number uh, to that of Europeans, uh, Canadian jihadists are a few years older. And also, interestingly, uh, we have found that uh, the Canadian uh, jihadists uh, are uh, way more educated than those of uh, their European counterparts. And of course, uh, the U.S., uh, there is not a big difference between the U.S. jihadists and uh, their Canadian uh, uh, fellows in terms of uh, education, age, uh, uh, and even uh, you can say the number is also not that different. Uh, Alex, does that? What difference does that make if they're older, better educated, and I guess more of them are men? So we had uh, fewer women who went over to become brides of ISIS. Is that the correct conclusion? So, so the the figure with on women is interesting. The data. Stopped in 2017. The data collection stopped in 2017, but we know from data from revelations published in 2018 that several more Canadian women have resurfaced. So I think that number is probably a bit low. And if we were to update the data for the for the last 18 months, um, we would have more women. But overall, I think um, the the pattern holds, just as Irfan just suggested that. By and large, Canadians in their data set are older. They're much more educated. Um, they're less. They were. They have less criminal motivation before the radicalization process, and they're more ethnically diverse than their European or uh, American counterparts. I think that's fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, you know, there's a lot of academic literature relating uh, age and uh, motivation and participation in militancy. Uh, there's relationships between education and um, economic uh, development and uh, um, militancy. Same thing with between the nexus between criminality and terrorism. And what our data is trying to suggest is that those questions have a, 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 per, uh, um, a particular Canadian characteristic, if you will, that is distinct from the European and U.S. experience. Okay, well, uh, you would expect that younger people would be more susceptible, but at the end of the day, what difference does it make if our terrorists are better educated? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I, let's go back to the age. Um, most militancy um, is perpetrated by young men uh, in their late teens and early 20s. And so it matters, I think, to a degree um, that Canadians, when they when they first became radical, uh, radicalized, were older to begin with. Um, that fire to continue to be motivated by militant ideologies will wane as they become older. And so at, if we're five years past the point of radicalization, these individuals are in their 30s at this point, they may be um, especially keen to drop 
their um, their their the ideologies and the hatred that they held onto as young uh, as younger adults. And so here, I think then, uh, and I'm you know, but if you're I, saying I, they're radicalized at a, an older age, then maybe they're more militant. They can be more militant, and they can have perhaps more uh, leadership roles. But the, the point is that you know, once a radical, not always a radical. And so there's lots of indiv- lots of cases of individuals um, after incarceration, after proper rehabilitation, who have renounced uh, the violence. We don't have to forgive them, but they have renounced the violence with which that they that they participated in. And so that's a question that Canada should explore. Okay. Uh, I know that uh, th- there have been some very high-profile cases of women saying, oh, we want to come back, not just here, elsewhere, in Britain as well. Uh, they're having a hard time in the camp, so yeah, they want to come back to Canada. We know that Canadian consular officials saying, hey, this is not a priority for us, uh, and we are not going to endanger Canadian diplomats, sending them into these camps or anything like that. So uh, let's take a call from Terry. Uh, Terry in Utopia, I'm trying to... Uh, Justin, <laughs> it's not... Uh, I'm trying to take a call, but it's not working. Hello. Okay. Hello. Hello, who am I speaking to? It's Terry in Utopia. Okay, Terry. Terry, is what your what is your view then? My view on this whole thing is, like, if people leave this country or any other country to support ISIS, they shouldn't be allowed back into the bloody country. I I don't know what's wrong with the government. I don't care what their excuses are. I don't care what they're supporting. They're terrorists. And why are we allowing them back in our country once they leave this country to support a terrorist group? I don't get it. Okay. Uh, I would like to give some comments on uh, uh, gentlemen' uh, opinion. Yeah, to a certain degree, I agree with you that uh, they shouldn't be allowed. But uh, again, we have some uh, political and moral question uh, and uh, uh, related to the foreign fighters' uh, persecution. For example, uh, should uh, their citizenship be revoked? What was the nature of the crimes that they committed overseas? Uh, should the government allow them to come back to their countries and what will happen to their families. So it's kind of a very tough uh, scenario even for the government to decide. But uh, it doesn't mean, uh, I think, in my viewpoint, that uh, those people, for example, their families, their children, that they should be abandoned. So the government must find some way to figure out what can be done and how uh, they can deal it in the most effective way. Okay, uh, but Alex, as you were mentioning, some of these children were born overseas. That's right. I mean, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the the comment. Um, I think most people feel that way. By the way, right. So I think what the, what our government and what other governments are currently exploring, is particular in the United, in in Europe, is is um, building different classifications of these extremist travelers. So you've got children that were born. Um, abroad, um, you know, they have no agency in how they got there. We can't punish them for having done nothing. So that's uh, at one far extreme. At the other far extreme, we have young men and some some women who purposefully went overseas, uh, were recruited into militancy, participated in brutal acts of violence, right? And anywhere in the, between there, we have individuals who were on the sidelines. We have women who were jihadi brides, so-called jihadi brides, and so on. 
what the governments are doing is categorizing these individuals and under, and trying to build an approach that fits each of their individual cases. And so in the hardened, you know, in the point of the hardened uh, fighter, uh, of course, we're not just going to let them in. There's a national security consideration here. But if there was enough evidence to uh, charge them and incarcerate them in Canada under Canadian laws, then that is one avenue. But that solution doesn't fit for other women who uh, may have aspired to help the Islamic State build itself, but not to participate in violence. So a different solution exists there and for the children and so forth. And this is why there's quite a bit of nuance in terms of how governments are approaching this question. Okay. And, uh, oh. So leaving leaving that aside for a second, uh, you, uh, my take of your conclusion is that uh, it, this is not a really big threat to Canada, that the fatal attacks have not been from people who are directly trained by any of these organizations, but from, you know, fellow travelers, lone wolves, whatever you want to call them. Is, am, am I, uh, am I stating your conclusion correctly? That's one of our conclusions, certainly, is that the vast majority of the attacks uh, in Canada were conducted by individuals inspired to act but not trained to act. And in, compar- in comparison to the European data or the American data, you know, the attacks that we've suffered have, have had limited, if not damaging, effects. And so of the hundreds of Europeans that have been killed in the last uh, five years alone, you know, we have nothing to compare uh, ourselves to, to that. And so we're, respectively, we're in a better position to uh, handle the few terrorists uh, and, and other extremists who are willing to come back. And we have a basis that is much uh, distinct from the European experience and distinct from the American experience. Again, the point here is that there's a Canadian characteristic to the radicalization process. Therefore, there's very likely to be a Canadian response uh, or Canadian approach to uh, diffusing the issue as well. Okay, well, uh, I, th- I would, this is uh, just a guess, uh, going into an election year, I don't think the government is keen to take this on. Uh, and if you can judge by the reaction to, for instance, the $10.5 million settlement for Omar Khadr, I don't think that they want to go anywhere near this and just kind of ignoring it, which is what they're doing now, I would suspect that that will continue. The problem with ignoring it is that um, of the Canadians um, that make up these foreign extremist travelers that are being currently held by the Kurdish forces, for instance, you know, there's a few Canadians of hundreds, potentially thousands of other foreigners. The Kurds have basically effectively said that they don't want to hold on to these individuals for much longer. And so there's political pressure from the Americans to repatriate um, and, and hopefully incarcerate some of these individuals. Uh, and there's pressure from the Kurds to potentially release them. There's also the risk of a, a prison break. We've seen that occur elsewhere in Syria and Iraq uh, in previous years. The point is that there are hardened criminals, hardened terrorists uh, being interned um, with no clear solution as to what to do. The most dangerous uh, consequence of this is to have them um, not be reintegrated or dealt with in a legal uh, manner, but to rejoin uh, the battlefield in Syria or in Iraq or elsewhere in North Africa uh, and the Middle East more broadly. So again, you know, it's a hard place um, it's a hard. There's no easy solution, and we're stuck between Iraq and uh, Iraq and a hard place. Okay, uh, and yeah. just wrapping things up. So, we'll, what are we left with with all of this, Irfan? Uh, yeah, 
Uh, let me uh, say I completely agree with Alex. Uh, we shouldn't forget that many of these uh, foreign terrorists were engaged in gross human rights violation, systematic masses, atrocities, etc., etc. But at the same time, we don't have sufficient evidence to uh, to persecute them. Uh, so the government should try to gather evidences and, of course, categorize them uh, so that the court can deal with them according to their crimes. And what we would suggest to the government is that uh, uh, it should monitor, uh, monitor the Canadian jihadists, including the returnees, uh, be it through websites or whatever database. Uh, and also, I would like to say that uh, a de-radicalization process is one of the most effective ways so that these extremists do not return back to terrorist or radical activities and Canadian soil. And of course, for the long-term safety, the government should introduce some policy measure to ensure that uh, radicalization and terrorism do not expand in Canada. We should remember that uh, a terrorist organization may die, such as uh, ISIS, but uh, terrorism is very less likely to die. So we should always be prepared to counter uh, this global menace. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex You're Milner welcome. and Irfan Yar. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.